You're listening to the Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number thirteen, the album. A framed vinyl album from 1987 hangs on the wall at the foot of the stairs. Its cover is in the format of an old variety playbill, with some of the names still familiar, others less so. The title of the album, Live at Jongleurs, refers to the once popular comedy venue off Lavender Hill. Glancing at eBay as I write, a near mint condition copy can be yours for £21, making it a collector's item. Don't all bid at once. In the mid 1980s, I worked for a film unit managed by Waltham Forest Council. Reading that previous sentence back only fills me with wonder at a time when a local authority had the budget and the wherewithal to run a film unit. We made promotional videos for council initiatives and community groups, shooting and editing footage to raise awareness of worthwhile causes and local issues. In 1985, the cold winds of public cutbacks finally hit us and the unit closed. Three of us decided to go it alone, shooting small-scale corporate films during the week and weddings at weekends. But our filmmaking careers continued more out of a sense of having little else to do than from any wish to rival MGM. We've already encountered my friend Ollie in the Lionel Bart chapter, auditioning for Oliver. Seven years earlier, he was a struggling drama school graduate yet to receive his equity card. In those days, if you weren't in the Actors' Union equity, you couldn't get any professional work. But you needed to prove you had undertaken professional acting work in order to join equity. Don't think for a moment that this strange Catch-22 was some communist conspiracy to freeze out young talent. The biggest supporters of this closed shop were the hard-right faction of equity, run by the likes of Kenneth Williams and Leonard Rossiter. There were valid arguments both for and against the closed shop, but the main point is that Ollie was trying and failing every possible angle to get that sodding equity card. Out of desperation, he turned to me. Matt, you remember those songs you wrote when we were back at uni? How about we put together a group and sing them a cappella on the comedy circuit? While we were both undergraduates, I penned a few comical and frankly tasteless songs for some or other end-of-term review. Typical student fare about social injustice and questionable sexual practices. If shooting and editing training films for light engineering firms or filming weddings in Chingford had been even slightly exciting, I might have said, do me a favour. But I needed little persuasion. We formed the group and named it, for reasons not worth discussing, the Draylon Underground. All we needed now was to find some gigs. At this time, the comedy circuit was still something of a cottage industry. Even though the likes of Ben Elton and Rick Mayle were now household names, it was still possible to break into comedy simply by buying a copy of Time Out magazine, going through the comedy listings and calling the phone numbers attached to each venue. With a little schmoozing, you got booked for a five-minute unpaid tryout spot, and if you survived the bear pit that was a London comedy club, you might, just might, be rebooked for a paid gig. 
People still view the old comedy circuit as the preserve of namby-pamby political correctness, beloved of Guardian readers and liberal arts lecturers. A place where comedians got laughs by simply shouting, Thatcher! The reality was that it operated on a level of social Darwinism even the Iron Lady might have found harsh. Regardless of any hatred for Norman Tebbit or love for Tony Benn, you either made the punters laugh or found another way to occupy your time. There were no other criteria. Partly because there weren't many other comedy a cappella groups around, we quickly got paid gigs all over London. False modesty aside, I should add that we were also bloody good. The massively cynical club audiences hadn't experienced anything like the Draylon Underground before. A comedy music act with original songs that actually made them laugh. We were never wry, cheerful, cheeky or any other euphemism for unfunny, so we breezed through weeks of guest spots with barely a bad gig. I still remember those first three months at the beginning of 1987 as some of the most thrillingly happy of my life. In February, barely a month after we started, we got an offer to appear on the telly. A producer spotted us at a strange hippie venue near Turnpike Lane called Earth Exchange and called us in for a meeting at his office on Oxford Street. As we feared, the question came, are you all members of Equity? The two women in the group, Maggie and Sue, were already seasoned professionals with fully paid up cards. But Ollie still wasn't a member, and at this point I had been in showbiz for approximately six weeks. If this meeting had taken place with a BBC producer in Shepherd's Bush, it would probably have ended there. But Cabaret at the Jongleurs was a new type of TV production, being the first BBC light entertainment show made by an external company. That shouldn't be a problem, smiled the producer. I'm sure we can sneak you through. Recording took place in April 1987. Two weeks later, Ollie and I presented our contracts to the powers that be and got our equity cards. And a few weeks after that, the invitation came to record the album. By this time, Jongleurs was vying with the Comedy Store as the circuit's flagship venue and wanted to cash in on its status afforded by the TV show. From a remembered conversation in the communal dressing room, I can pinpoint the exact date of the recording as the 14th of May, 1987. Did you see on the news that Rita Hayworth died? said Arthur Smith. Gilda. Must be the sexiest film ever made. I'd better lend you my copy of Debbie Does Dallas then, said Paul Merton. The album didn't trouble the charts, but that didn't matter. The mere fact of its release chalked us up within the comedy world as an established act. We never became household names, at least I'm pretty sure no one ever mentioned us in your household, but we got regular work, some of it lucrative, some just about covering the bus fare home, and seeing how hard it was for many of my friends to break in led me to arrogantly think, this showbiz lark is easy. I don't see what all the fuss is about, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Breaking in was easy. Sustaining momentum was a grindstone deserving its own chapter. About 30 years later, I met Paul Merton and mentioned how we both once featured on a comedy album. Live at Jongleurs, he immediately fired back. 
It must have been about the last ever comedy album recorded on vinyl. I've still got it framed on my wall. That was The Album, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.